Welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the new on-screen versions of Star Trek. For now, we're looking back at Star Trek Picard. This week, we're talking about episode seven of the season, Nepenthe. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick, the media guy on the faculty. And I'm Dr. Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy guy. And our website is the Star Trek Academy blogspot.com and you can find links there to podcast sites where you can listen and subscribe probably the best way to keep track of our new podcasts and other announcements is probably our twitter feed and that's at trek underscore academy and we invite you to go back and listen to our podcasts about season three episodes of discovery as well as the entire first season of lower decks and we think that'd be a great way to get ready for Lower Decks Season 2, which is coming up here in August. But today we're talking about Nepenthe, as I said, the seventh episode of Star Trek Picard Season 1. Now, we assume that listeners have watched Picard by now, since it's really been out for a year or so as we record this. But we're still going to offer a summary to refresh our collective memories. And with that, here is Dr. Cup. All right. So at the beginning of this episode, we flash back to the Daystrom Institute three weeks ago, and Commodore O is visiting Gerardi during her lunch break, apparently to ask her some questions about her interactions with Picard. O performs a mind meld on Gerardi in order to show her the apocalyptic consequences of allowing synthetic life to exist. And these visions are so disturbing that Gerardi immediately agrees to cooperate with her. O gives her a tracker to ingest and tells her that she will need to make a terrible sacrifice. Meanwhile, back in the present, we're aboard the artifact and Picard and Soji use the spatial trajector in the queen cell to travel to Nepenthe, where Riker and Troy now live with their daughter Kestra. Riker and Troy greet Picard warmly, and they offer to let he and Soji stay there for as long as they like. But uh, when they find out that Soji is being pursued by Romulans, they worry that Picard's visit might put Kestra in harm's way. Troy and Riker had already lost a son, Thad, to a silicon-based virus of some kind. It could have been cured by culturing the infected cells in an active positronic matrix, but of course they couldn't do that because that technology wasn't available after the synth ban, so Thad lost his life. Now Soji's visit to Nepenthe is difficult. She learns that her sister Daj was murdered by Romulans. She also begins to deal with the fact that she's synthetic, and also thanks to Narek's betrayal and the falsity of her implanted memory, she finds it difficult to trust anyone or believe what they say. Eventually though, Picard is able to convince her that she can trust him. And she tells him about the memories that were uncovered during the Jalmak. And that information allows them to locate her home planet and that's where she wants to go. Picard, of course, agrees to travel there with her. And on the morning of their departure, Kestra tries to convince Soji that she and Picard could be family to each other. And Soji tells Kestra that she'll think about it. And La Serena arrives and Rios beams them up. Now, while all this is happening on the artifact, Hugh refuses to tell Narissa where Picard and Soji went. So she kills several XBs. And later, Hugh tells Elnor, remember Elnor is still aboard this cube, that he's going to use the power of the queen cell to take the artifact 
away from the Romulans. Now, Narissa overhears their conversation. Now that Hugh has violated this treaty establishing the Borg Reclamation Project, she says she's authorized to kill him, and she does, and then beams away. Later, Elnor is there alone and sees the signaling device that he uses to send an SOS to the Fenris Rangers. So you can predict who, who will be on her way in a future episode. And meanwhile, we've got the people aboard La Serena who are dealing with someone who's following them. Gerardi has lost interest in going to Nepenthe and meeting the sentient synth, and now she just wants to go home. But Rios tells her, look, I've got a paying client and you're just along for the ride. This is disturbing to Gerardi, so Rafi tries to comfort her with cake and milk. But remember, Gerardi had ingested that tracker. So Narek is able to shadow La Serena, even though they do what they can to lose him. Rios tells Gerardi at one point that he thinks maybe it's Rafi who's being tracked, but he has to leave her in order to deal with their pursuer. And when he's gone, Gerardi replicates this uranium hydride hypospray, doses herself and winds up in a coma. And when that happens, Narek loses the tracking signal. And that's the episode. Okay, so thank you very much. First, we'll look at some of the individual elements, and then in a little bit here, we'll talk about the themes and the ethics as portrayed in uh, in Nepenthe here. And I said last time, this episode, or at least the part of it set on Nepenthe, really serves as kind of an interlude before the final, if you will, the final act of the season, which is the final three episodes. Each of those episodes ends in a cliffhanger, and we'll be talking about them, the three of them together, on our next podcast episode. But uh, because this is kind of an interlude, and because of the nostalgia of being with Troy and Riker and all of that, we decided to consider just Nepenthe this time, uh, because it's so steeped in, in Trek lore from that visit to Troy and Riker. And we can get started with the title of the episode, Nepenthe. And that's defined as a potion used by the ancients to induce forgetfulness of pain and sorrow. And that suggests that the planet Troy and Riker call home serves that purpose somehow. Um, so I've thought about this, you know, they're all suffering to various degrees, Picard, Soji, Riker, Troy, Kestra. How do they forget their pain and sorrow? Well, the Troy Rikers, they've had time to mourn the death of, of Thad. Picard now has a new mission, and I think that's helping him to forget his sorrows. And Soji, well, she has a lot to deal with in this episode, but at the end, when she finds out what her homeworld is, her, her mission to see her homeworld, I think is helping her move past her considerable traumas. You know, there was that phrase about the restorative properties of, of Nepenthe, and that was in right. it was stated in the context of Thad's disease, but uh, in the greater storyline of the season, I think we're we're seeing that function here also. We didn't I mention like it. Yeah, we didn't mention it in the summary, but I think an important part of this episode is is another part of Thad's backstory about growing up on starships, particularly the USS Titan and his fascination with the idea of a homeworld. And, and we could note here that that's a similarity, surely intentional, because uh, with Soji, because she now knows she's synthetic and she's looking for a homeworld, also just like that had. 
and tied to Thad's desire from a homeworld is his invention of multiple languages and stories about the tribes of people on this fantasy world that, that he created in his mind, but, but real functional languages and things. And Kestra has followed through, and when we first meet her, she's playing the part of a wild girl of the woods in memory of her, of her brother. And, and that's all just very reminiscent of fan cosplay. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, dressing up as science fiction or fantasy characters, sometimes really role playing them or at least going to cons in costume and doing it as as a tribute to to some of their favorite uh, favorite works in, in fiction. Related to that is there's a scene of Deanna and Picard in Thad's room. And when it ends, we hear a very prominent reprise of the Picard series theme, which is, remember also the flute melody from the Next Generation episode, Inner Light. And that episode is also all about family and about remembrance. Right. And I, I think we're going to, I'm sure we'll mention this again, but um, family is pretty important in this episode. Uh, near the end, Kester tells Soji that, she and Picard could be family to each other. And neither of them have a family, if you think about it, and both of them probably need one. You know, although Will and Deanna are in a different a different place, physical, both physically and psychologically, from where we're used to them being on the Enterprise, there's still a lot of familiarities here. And I think that's part of what makes this such a strong episode. And for example, nobody mentions Deanna being empathic. It, we're just expected to know that she can read emotions without really having it explained. Right. She she does mention in passing uh, to Soji that that, she, that her homeworld is Beta Z, but fans are expected to know that. Yeah, they're expected to, to know about her. Uh, Will is cooking, and we know from Next Generation and also from Enterprise that it's I'm tempted to say his hobby, but it's really more than that. It's, he's really appears to be pretty, pretty good at it. Yeah. And also it, it was so perfect that he was listening to jazz music, right? As he was making dinner, you know, that's what he's interested in. He plays the trombone. And another thing also, when Kestra is trying to learn more about Soji, she asks her if she likes any of the things that Data liked or any of the things that Data did, like playing violin and reading Sherlock Holmes mysteries and so on. And I think if, if you're not familiar with TNG, you might have missed that. Yeah, there's so, so many things here that they didn't overtly explain, but fans were just expected to recognize from, from the past incarnations of Star Trek. Another thing I thought was kind of cute, Will's mention of the Kazinti, which are fictional characters in the novels of Larry Niven. And they've been mentioned once before in Star Trek. That was in the 1970s animated series episode, The Slaver Weapon. And coincidentally, Larry Niven wrote that episode. So now the Kazinti are also reflected in live action Star Trek. Jonathan Frakes said at, at the time the series uh, premiered that he had been a little concerned about the fact that he has not acted for so long. And he's been directing recently. And of course, he... He, he did direct in this season, but he also played Riker, and he was concerned because Marina Sirtis has been acting recently, and he, he Frakes just said that her acting chops were in full force, and it's been quite a while for him, but I thought he did a really good job of recapturing Riker. It's interesting, though, that, I mean, Riker was originally sort of the Kirk-like character, the, the young, ambitious guy, uh, and here he's He's not as old as Picard, but he's really kind of serving as the elder statesman in this episode. 
And speaking again of Riker, this episode, it's very subtle, but it plants the seed of Will still being on active Starfleet Reserve. Now, we're rewatching. We know that that's foreshadowing of something to come in the future. But it's also a, a, an important and a common writing technique, particularly when there's a big plot twist coming up. The writer plants just a little seed that maybe you don't hardly even notice at the time, but the audience then can go back and say, oh yeah, they mentioned that. So that, that just planting the seed there. And I also have to ask, what is with that outdoor <laughs> shower? I mean, Will and Dan, they've got a nice place there in a, in, a, in a fancy kitchen. I can't imagine that they don't have an indoor shower. Yeah, the the best sense I could make of this is that, you know, because I was wondering about this too, and I was I associate outdoor showers with things like resorts or secluded places. So I was thinking, okay, maybe they're trying to create this impression, you know, in the viewer that, you know, the Riker Troy home is a, a refuge from work and from trouble, and it's a safe place and a place where they can go to get away from it all, which in a way is what Soji and Picard are trying to do here. Yeah, right? but but still, I mean, and it may be that they're so isolated, there's not really any privacy issue, but think about it. As soon as a guest arrives, she's invited to take off all her clothes <laughs> outdoors. Outside, yeah. And that just seems a little strange. Plus, they don't ever have cool weather, you know? Oh, it's, it's you know, it's it's a little cool outside, can't shower today. I don't know that that seems yeah. it, it was very scenic it was it was kind of artistic but uh, I questioned that I also have three other just really quick details here when they are eating cake together and by the way it wasn't just milk it was chocolate milk oh that's uh, right Agnes says Raffi's a good person you're a good person and Raffi claims to be the wreckage of a good person and that's a reference you know we've we we and lots of others have observed that every every main character in this series is broken in some way or the other and and it's interesting at the same time Raffi who I mean Raffi's superpower is that she sees things that others don't and she figures out pretty quickly that Agnes is broken up about Maddox but she's not understanding why yet so that's one one thing I noticed. Uh, I thought that the direct confrontation between the Jatvash and the Quilat Milat was interesting. Elner and Nerissa really go one-on-one, -on -one, and it's a good fight scene, but it's also symbolic of the differences in Romulan society. Not all Romulans are these apocalyptic bad guys. And then finally, Neret has his box that he's messing with all the time he's He's following La Serena. I, I think of it as his fidget box. It's it's <laughs> essentially one of his Rubik cubes. But but remember a few years ago, a couple of years ago, fidget spinners were really big. How could I forget? You don't see them anymore. But I I think doing the math, I think probably about the time this script was written was when fidget spinners were big. So maybe there was a little bit of influence there. Yeah. Can we go back to something just occurred to me about? Agnes and Rafi. Okay. It couldn't have been easy killing Bruce Maddox, but I, I feel like maybe Gerardi is kind of feeling guilty about having agreed to let the Romulans track them. And maybe that's what's making her so unhappy as, as well. You know, Rafi is being so nice to her and there's no overdoing it on planet Rafi. 
and here she is really uh, deceiving them and being like a, a double agent, you know? I agree. I think we figure out eventually that it was more than just Agnes agreeing to do that, that as part of the mind meld, Commodore O, it was almost like hypnotizing her and force, forcing her to do something, maybe believing it was her free will to do it, but not, not really mm. true. And then, and then installing the, the psychic block to keep her from talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not at this point of this conversation with Rafi. I'm not sure if Agnes has figured that out yet. Yeah. Um, and so I can, I can see that she may be conflicted, not really understanding fully why she did that in that moment. Right. Now, Let's see. Commodore O is half Vulcan, half Romulan. They right? tell us that, I think, next episode. Yeah. Oh, in next episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't. I mean, it makes complete sense that the Romulans would, you know, modify a Vulcan mind meld in such a way as to manipulate people and do something really sneaky. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like a the, just the sort of thing these uh, Jat Vash people would do. Yeah. But, um, I guess we can move on to, uh, you know, underlying meanings, messages, and the like. Yeah, we are Uh, getting kind of close to the themes and ethics, aren't we? Yeah, that we could glean from this episode. And uh, the first main theme that I see that is really pretty obvious and straightforward is home. We've already talked about Thad Riker's fascination with home worlds Mm. and Kestra pointing out now that Soji has has a home world, knows where a home world is. And I think emotionally Picard seeking out Troy and Riker is also sort of a homecoming because, you know, not literally family, but right. you know, they're they they function as as family for him. And, I, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that yeah, about that. And, you know, just the home, home world, all of that. As you pointed out, Kestra really takes great joy in pointing yeah. out that Soji has a home world now. So I think home is a is an important theme here. And we may see that continued in future episodes also. Right. And uh, listeners who remember where this goes from here, I'm sure will agree. <laughs> I mean, we, usually, we spend a lot of time on on Soji's homeworld in future episodes. Um, there's some themes that we've identified earlier that make a reappearance. So for example, this idea that people, even when they're elderly, can still do meaningful things with their lives. Soji asks Picard why he's helping her. And, and he says, before your sister came to me, I was haunted by my past, marking time, wasting my life. But now I'm alive and I have a mission. And that means that there's nothing you or anyone can do to stop me. So we see that theme again here about Picard late in his life doing something meaningful with his life. Really hard to make a difference, yeah. Another theme that I see is what's real. You know, Soji, I think more than once, essentially asks if she is real. And Deanna tells her, uh, that that what is real is not always better, as she tells the story of Thad's death and the synth man, and we'll see this this theme coming back in in the final episodes of the the season as well. What what is what is real? Yeah, and I I had a take on this also. I saw this tying into this older theme of synthetic life forms being people. Also, the scene we're talking about here is when Soji is given a tomato to eat, and the tomato is symbolic of quote unquote, real life forms. And Soji says that the real non-replicated tomato is so much better than the tomato she's had in her life. And of course, 
Soji's thinking she's not real, but Troy makes the case that real is always better. If they had only had an active positronic matrix, they might have saved Thad. And of course, that's not real. And everyone at Soji encounters on Nepenthe treats her as a fully human being, just as real as anyone else. So the question, in a way, is not really about whether she's real or not in the sense of whether she exists or not, but it's about sentience. Are synths people in the common understanding of the term? Do they go beyond just simple programming to expand their, their intellect, their personhood? And I think the writers expect us to conclude that they are real people. Absolutely. And, and for that reason, deserving of the same kind of treatment that the rest of us are, right? Mm-hmm. Another theme that we noted earlier was skepticism. Soji here is grappling with the reality of her implanted memories. And she tells Troy, I don't trust you, Orchestra. I definitely don't trust Picard. This whole thing, it's if it's even really happening, how do I know it's not just another game? That it isn't real, like my childhood, like my parents. And it's difficult to put yourself in her position and just imagine that everything you thought you know is false and how difficult that must be. So what we're being given here by the writers, and I uh, appreciate it, is this thought-provoking mix of science and philosophy, really. The kind of thing we've seen in movies like The Matrix and Dark City and this Spanish film, Open Your Eyes, that I've uh, taught and others. So it's, a, it's, it's good. If you're into philo- philosophical themes, this is a nice one. You know, it reminds me a bit of some recent talk about use of the term virtual during the COVID era. And people use it, tend to use it to just mean it's something we did online, you know, a virtual meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the dictionary definitions do reflect that these days. But really the longer term definition of virtual uh, as an adjective, as a descriptive word, is very close to being something without actually being it. So close to, but Mm. not quite. And the dictionary says that the opposite of virtual is actual, real, or true. And that's kind of what Soji's asking. And to use some of Uh, our recent terminology, she's asking, am I a fake? Am I fake? Okay. Am I real? Am I fake? Right. Yeah. I like that. Good. Um, Another theme, of course, is uh, broken people. We mentioned earlier, and I note this only to say quickly that, you know, we see now how exactly Girardi was uh, broken. Yes, and, and we're also seeing, and, and we've kind of seen it through the episodes so far, but Picard is really as broken as, as the others. I mean, there's his long-term mourning of data, but mm-hmm. Picard still, as we've noted previously, has trouble understanding people's emotions. Uh, Riker calls it classic Picard arrogance, and Deanna just out and out reprimands Picard. She's not, you know, she's pretty blunt about it. She uh, is. Will coaches him in dealing with ineffective teenager, which he says is a humbling experience. Right. And Riker also seems to object, doesn't he, to Picard keeping him in the dark about the trouble that he's in? Uh-huh. And he says, I'll stick to making pizza. I'm just thinking how great it would be if ignorance of danger was all it took to keep it away from the people we love. I think in his own way, Riker is manipulating Picard. He's pushing him in the direction he thinks Picard needs to go. 
And uh, as part of the reprimand, Deanna tells Picard that to Soji, the capacity mm. to trust seems like a flaw in her programming. But I think I think Picard just naturally expects to be trusted because he's famous. You know, he was the captain of the Enterprise and he did all this stuff. How many times did he save planet Earth and and uh, all that sort of thing? Um, right. So he, he just expects to be trusted. He doesn't pause to think about how people are are perceiving him. Right. And I think I think, uh, you know, Troy also faults him for not doing enough to understand the situation Soji is in from Soji's perspective. Right. And I think that's a good lesson in leadership, not just about Star Trek, but for all people in leadership roles. Uh, it's not just about you. It's about how the people you work with are responding. And, uh, and that. so I think that's a very good lesson in, in leadership. We've already kind of alluded to it, but I think the final conversation between Kestra and Soji is important too. To be a little bit, to, to, to quote more directly, when Kestra encourages Soji to trust Picard, she says, you could have him and he could have you and you could have each other. And so in effect, she's encouraging Soji to move beyond that that thing that Deanna called a, a perception of a flaw in her programming. And that ability to do that, move beyond your programming, I think is in and of itself evidence of sentience. Right. Uh, and speaking of Kestra and Soji, also there's that compass, yep. um, which Kestra gives to Soji as they're getting ready to leave. And it, again, it seems like a little thing, but I think the compass is a metaphor well, the compass, a compass is always a metaphor for finding one's way. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, maybe the fact that it doesn't work is symbolic of how hard it is sometimes to find your way emotionally and, and socially. You know, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I mean, it's clearly a metaphor. But when I was thinking about this, I, I thought, you know, either I'm missing something or the writer's are being really sloppy in the way they're using this metaphor because um you know at the end you know when kestra gives soji that compass she says you just have to pretend that it works and but how is that going to help you find your way I mean, you can't a compass can't help you find your way if you're just pretending that it works i mean for me it seems soji and picard they know where they're going now so in order to complete the metaphor it seems like the compass would need to be fixed and working so i was c confused here you know i'm thinking about that maybe what the message is is that you need to find the direction within yourself not from some external source it's not just the compass pointing over there you have to figure it out for yourself they know you're right they know physically where they're going this this planet that has two red moons and used to have a bunch of electrical storms but but right. but they don't know really yet where they're going emotionally they're not emotionally fixed yet like the compass they're still to a certain extent broken oh right um, you know the challenges right, like the yeah the challenges they face in the episodes we'll talk about next time show that there's there's still that brokenness for both Soji and Picard and a brokenness between them even though they've certainly made some progress while they're there on Nepenthe. All right, good points. There are a few ethical issues in this in this episode I wanted to mention. 
you know, and the first one is Commodore O subjecting Gerardi to that mind meld. Now, it might look to some viewers as if Gerardi gave her permission when she said, okay, but I don't think she did. I don't think she really knew what she was consenting to. So it wasn't really informed consent. And not only that, I mean, this mind meld entailed considerable risks for Gerardi, right? I mean, I, I believe we've heard that that some folks upon learning of this prophecy or whatever you want to call it, have killed themselves. Uh, so uh, she endangers, oh, endangers Gerardi's life by putting these traumatic visions in her head. And I, I think O knew what she was doing. And she knew that if Gerardi survived the experience that she would do O's bidding. And we talked about that a little bit earlier. Now, a Kantian ethicist would say that O used Gerardi as a mere means to achieving her own ends. She basically reduced Gerardi to a tool or an appliance. And, and for Kant, that's a very serious moral wrong. Now, if you look at it from the Romulan perspective, the Romulans would say, look, trillions of souls, right, across the galaxy hang in the balance here. You know, Nerissa tells you that. She says, you may have doomed a trillion souls across half the galaxy. They probably believe the Jat Vash, that is, that they're justified in what they're doing because they need to protect uh, sentient life in the galaxy, which is an admirable goal. I mean, surely. So that's um, a, a sort of ethical uh, exploration here in this, in this episode. And there's a similar one when we reflect on how the Romulans have used Soji. They've treated her also merely as a means to their own ends. And Troy explains this, explains this to Picard, right? She says, do you have any idea what the Romulans did to her, to you, the idea that all this could be some kind of subterfuge or simulation is preposterous, but to her, it would be more of the same. She's been manipulated, tortured, her very consciousness has been violated. And the, and the upshot of all this in this episode is that you've got to give beings, you have to treat them with the respect that they are due, this sort of Kantian respect. They need to be treated as valuable persons themselves and not merely as tools to accomplish what you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think Commodore O probably gave Agnes an edited version of the prophecy because she needed Agnes to survive. Uh, but still, it was it was it was powerful and, and That's impactful. True. You know, at this point in the season, we haven't rewatched the scenes yet in which Raffi and we'll talk about them next time, connects the dots for the rest of the crew. And we find out, this, this, spoilers here, but again, I assume everyone is, at least a year ago, watched Picard about these uber AIs that, that want to rescue other AIs from oppression by biological life. But we are watching, and since we do know what's coming, it strikes me that the mm -hmm. whole theory of the Romulans that they need to prevent all AI life is flawed. They are discriminating against them, committing violence against them, and doing that forces them to call for help from the Uber right. AIs, is what I'm calling them. If we, on the other hand, accorded them equal rights, if we accepted them, that would accomplish the same thing and, and without all the death and destruction. But no, they're the Romulans or the, the Shot Vash, at least reaction was to ramp up the discrimination even more. Right. Right. You see that in situations around the world sometimes. Yeah. There are protests and let's crack down as hard as we can, as opposed to 
considering whether there is legitimacy to to the protests. But so they just ramped up the discrimination even more. I think the writers clearly cast the AIs, the synths, as metaphors for groups of people around the world who've been discriminated against by the larger yep. society. And that's what Star Trek does yep. uh, so often. We use a future science fiction setting to comment about today's society. And uh, whether that was the intent for the synths from day one when they started plotting out the season or whether that evolved, I don't know. But I think that is clear part of the message that, that they have for us that we are learning about more and more as we go along here. Absolutely. That, that is such a typical Star Trek thing to do. Uh, and, and it makes perfect sense. <laughs> I, have, I have no doubt you're right about that. So let's uh, just think for a minute about our conclusions, our final thoughts. I have to say, I like this episode, and I like it as well as any yeah, me this too. season. As any this season, it's a trip down nostalgia lane, but it also advances the plot, and it's kind of a feel-good ending before we launch into these final three episodes that are the the culmination of the crisis and the the thrilling finale of uh, of the story of the season. Yeah, I have to say, when they bring Riker and Troy back, I, I had the same feeling about it happening here as I did in that final episode of Lower Decks. It was just, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I had a few issues with the episode, though, and I just want to see what you think about this. I mean, it seems like the writer's handling of Soji in this episode anyway, is confused. And let me explain why I say that. Um, Troy, we're told, cannot read Soji. Now, why is that? <laughs> I mean, now Soji is synthetic, okay? But she's not a robot. Now, I could understand why Troy might not be able to read robots. Robots, they're not sentient. They don't have qualitative mental states or emotions or anything like that. But, you know, Soji is no mere robot. I'm not even sure it's correct to call her an android. Um, an android is a robot with human appearance. Data was an android. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Soji is synthetic, but she appears to be a biological life form, right? She has mucus, she has saliva and blood. Unlike Data, she appears to have emotions, at least until he got his emotion ship, but mm -hmm. uh, and qualitative mental states. So I don't know why Troy wouldn't be able to read her. I'm confused about that. You know, I think in The Next Generation, there were one or two times when there was an alien species that that Deanna couldn't read. And of course, that was a plot device because sure, if she could yeah. read it, you know, then 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 we wouldn't have the whole episode to play out a story. But you're right. It's I mean, and it's also kind of convenient here that Deanna can't experience the emotions uh, more directly of what Soji is feeling. And and yet she's able to understand better than Picard where Soji is coming from. She is a counselor, is, and you know, yeah. and that means she's a psychologist. She's got a lot of experience and in next generation remember the episode that she lost her empathic ability briefly she was able to fall back on her other psychological training to to understand people and where they're coming from if she didn't enjoy it she'd rather be empathic <laughs> but uh, you know she has other skill sets other than just reading your mind right of course of course yeah, um, I'm going to have to go back and, and, and watch that. I'm not, I'm not remembering that. Uh, another thing that bothered me, really made me kind of angry, is uh, killing off Hugh. And, I, you know, what purpose does that serve? I, I don't get it. And I know 
we want to bring Seven of Nine back into the series. And one way you can do that is by killing Hugh. They need an XB to reactivate the Borg cube. Seven of Nine would fulfill that role. I get it. But it's irksome to me. It feels like we were just getting reacquainted with him and they kill him off. Writers, Picard writers, that irks me. You know, we, we don't like it when sympathetic characters die in our works of fiction. And when writers do this, I think their intent is to show us how serious the stakes are. Uh, in the Firefly movie, in Serenity, two of the main characters from the TV series die. And when you watch it the first time, it makes you wonder if right. anyone's going to survive. It's like the death of the main characters in Easy Rider and The Wild Bunch and, and movies like that. You know, is anyone going to survive? The stakes, wow, the stakes are really high here when you right. watch it the first time. I'm also thinking about Avengers Endgame, or I'm sorry, uh, Infinity War. Yeah. Um, but can you remind me, it was in Firefly, was it... It was Wash and and who else? Shepherd Book. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yep. yep. And so I think I, you know, I think here it wasn't one of the regular. It was a still a guest star character, even though he'd been in multiple episodes. But uh, I think I think that was showing us how bad the Jat Vash are, yeah. and and making us really wonder: Are we going to lose somebody else? Uh, the stakes are high. It's it's like in Harry Potter, killing Hedwig. It's just an owl, but it's something that was completely unexpected and a sympathetic character you don't want to lose. So right. that's kind of a downside to end our podcast on, <laughs> yeah, sure but is. I think we've kind of come <laughs> to the, the things we made notes about. Do you have anything else to add about Nepenthe? Um, I think that about covers it, Michael. Okay. So the Star Trek Academy will be back in a couple of weeks or so. I won't guarantee it's exactly 14 days, but in a couple of weeks or so. And in that podcast, we'll be talking about the final three episodes of the Picard season. And of course, we're also gearing up for the new season of Lower Decks that will start in not too many weeks also. We invite you, our audience, to rewatch along with us and join us for comments next time. And as Rodney said at the top of the podcast, the best way to find out that we've released new episodes or uh, other announcements is to watch our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. And that does it for this podcast. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. See you next time.